Hello, dear listeners. You are, yes, indeed, on the podcast Research Lives and Cultures. I'm your host, Sandrine Soub. I work as a facilitator, trainer, and coach, and I love interviewing academics and people who work in the research environment. I have the pleasure to have on this episode of the podcast Professor Ralph Müller from ETZ in Zurich in Switzerland. In this interview, we talk about some of the challenges that academics face when they are setting up their research team, challenges in terms of discovering their own approach to leadership, discovering how they may want to recruit researchers to work with them, and also issues to do with the hierarchy that you are creating or not in your research team. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Ralph Müller, who is from ETZ Zurich, the university in Switzerland. It's a very famous, very prestigious institution. And I was put in touch with Ralph through the ITN network Fidelio, which is a research network in a, which is part of the European community. I will be working with some of the PhD students from the Fidelio network over a number of workshops. And I was really interested to hear uh, the experience of Ralph working with researchers, PhD students and postdoctoral researchers. Because when we talk about the research environment, there is always this one thing of the interaction between PhD supervisor and PhD students and the impact that this has on the career of both the research leader, but also the PhD student. So to start off our conversation, Ralph, could you tell us a little bit about the early years in your research career? I mean, how did it all start for you? Well, thanks, Andre, first for having me. It's a real pleasure to actually talk about that. I think the, the important thing for me is that I was actually, you know, when I studied, I didn't have actually uh, really the desire to do a PhD. I, I was, you know, first of all, just look at finishing my, my master thesis or diploma at the time. And it was actually, you know, only that interest in medical applications of electrical engineering, right? So I was an electrical engineer, mostly signal processing, you know, mathematics. And I go like, well, oh, that's interesting. You know, maybe I could do something like that. And I was thinking, what, what kind of career could I have? Where, which company would hire me for that? And actually, there was nobody around. So I go like, oh, but there's research, right? So maybe I can find a job in research. And then the professors around me were very encouraging. They, they saw the potential at the time. They actually did ask me, say, like, I think you would be a, a wonderful candidate to actually do research with us. You would, you know, seem to be, you know, well educated and uh, interested in the topic. Why don't you start with us? So I decided on on a, you know, um, a team that was actually very small, five people, and um, you know, very focused on on imaging. And uh, that was interesting for me in two ways. First of all, I could use my signal processing theory and apply to trying to help people. And I think that was very important. And the small team was uh, also helping me. And the supervisor, he was a physicist, and he was very organized. And already day one, he would tell me, this is what you can do, and gave me purpose. And if you can do all of that in three years, then you're going to have a PhD. 
And I took that very literally and I really just worked on all of these issues and, and it was actually done in three and a half years or something like that. So um, I think the, the supervisor that helped me was really the person that, you know, she said, I think I believe in you. I mean, in that sense, I think you have the talent. Here is what you could do. Try it out and then come back when you're done. And uh, he, he did not, you know, like have this very close relationship all the time and telling me what to do. So I think for me, it was extremely important that I could actually develop myself and find uh, new ways of you know, solving problems. And so that was one side. And the other side for, for me as, as being a person like you know, going to meetings, talk to people is not something that I feel very uncomfortable with. But he, he was a classical physicist that he was like just not, not really interested in meeting people. And so, but we, what we did had actually found quite some application, you know, in the, in the community. People wanted to hear about that. So he would always say, Ralph, why don't you go? You know, I, I don't want to go. And so I'm not saying that this is what you should do with your PhD students, but it helped me a great deal because I was able at early years already to present actually the good things that we had to do and gave me also the feedback, although sometimes people feel uncomfortable about that, but that's how you can make, a, I think, a career so that you are able to present your own things in front of other people. And that's, that, that was the two things in, in very different ways. You know, sometimes it can be active, somewhat thinking about it and be a mentor and say you have to do it. And sometimes it's maybe a little bit less active, somewhat just, I don't want to do that. Why don't you do it? So in any way that this works, I think it's important uh, that you do that with your graduate students as well. I mean, it's interesting because in a way it's quite unusual, you know, during your PhD to work with a supervisor who in a way is less keen to talk about their, their own work themselves and actually pushes you to go and, and do the talking and the presenting. But in you, how did you go then about choosing, you know, who you went to work with after? Because that that's one of the challenge for for researchers and that's something that i found really fascinating is how do we make choices of who we want to work with because there is this balance between being strategic of working you know in a in a pre prestigious lab or working with somebody who does work that really interests us but at the same time working with somebody that we really get on with and working with somebody that we think will support us and often we can't have every, necessarily everything. So in your own approach, how did you make these choices? It's a good point. So I had, you know, I, I had two-pronged approach, let's put it this way, right? So I would actually talk to people that I already knew and had some trust that they, they, they were interested in me again, right? So they said, why don't you join us, you know, for a postdoc? You'll be a fantastic addition here. And we don't have right money right now, but we have some funds you can apply to and we, I can help you with that, right? And uh, so that, that was one thing. I knew the person. I had trust that if I would go there, that, that would be a great experience. But, but it was really driven by the person and not necessarily by the institution, right? So, and, and the, the possibilities that I had at that place were, I thought, somehow limited. On the other side, I said, like, okay, and also drive that myself so I can say where would be my dream place to be and I can write an application actually I don't need actually anybody that you know is locally looking for me there's a National Science Foundation in Switzerland that allows you to apply you know for postdoctoral fellowship it's, it's really great in the country that you have that 
or Marie fellowships, right, uh, in, in the European Union. It's, you don't, you need a host, but actually you are the one that is sitting in the driver's seat. You, so if somebody comes to my lab and says, I, I would like to work with you, I'm going to write an MCA application, well, usually if that looks good on CV, I go like, yeah, please, yeah, sounds good, do it. And I did the same thing. So I was looking, interestingly enough, you know, that my dream place would not necessarily be just where the science is great, but I like the environment. I like the city. I like to explore that. And so I was looking, you know, just had uh, some traveling going on before uh, I did that. And I was uh, in the New England area and I was spending some time in Boston as well. I really liked it. And I go, okay, you know, I think there is a university called Harvard and it's not so bad. So why don't I find a, so a person who works there and actually, you know, then found out, oh, oh, I've read actually papers of that person, but I didn't know him, never met him. And I contacted him and say exactly the same thing. So, you know, I would like to work uh, in your lab. Uh, what would it take? I can write this application. And he goes like, yeah, sounds like pretty interesting. I'll help you with that. Uh, funny thing that happened to me then when, when I arrived, you know, I go uh, to the lab. I work really, really hard with the, my you know, advisor at the time there. And when I come, I wanted to say hi to him. And then the secretary in the, in the institute uh, told me, oh, he just left for Switzerland because he's doing a sabbatical. And he actually failed to tell me. So I had no clue, right? So I arrived. The person that I had contact with wasn't even around. But that, again, was actually an advantage because everybody else had to actually take up a lot of, you know, leadership. So in a way, this must have been very influential in terms of setting you to become very independent very early on, which in a way not everybody has in their, in their research career, especially, you know, straight after your PhD. How do you think it's, it has shaped the way you build your confidence and you felt that you were esta establishing yourself? Now, that's, that's a very good question. It's a good point. And I think that, of course, again, these are these unique situations where you cannot say, well, you have to go through the same experience. It's just a lot of luck, right? I mean, like if it were, would have been around, it would have been more difficult for me to become so independent. I, of course, the good thing was that I brought my own money and, and he would always tell me, this is your money. I mean, you decide on what you do. Um, if I use my own money, then I want to have a say in that. And I think this is really great. So that's why I also recommend really people to get such fellowship. Even if they get a job offer, right, and there will be already money available, try to get these fellowships because you can only get them in a certain period of time. And it immediately in the, in the, it, it elevates you and allows you to do things that uh, the other ones uh, wouldn't be able to do that are just higher, let's say, you know, that's even if they're really great. Uh, but I understand that's not for everybody. You need to be comfortable with, uh, you know, being, you know, thrown in the water as well, right? So, I mean, I hadn't, I never let anything. Uh, and then I had to be kind of responsible for a small group of people because we somehow kind of shared that responsibility amongst the people in the lab. But uh, what it certainly told me, and that's something I'm trying to do as well now, again, you know, uh, many years later, is that, yeah, you can organize yourselves actually quite without hierarchy with a group of people, you know, that have the same common interest. It's a research question, you know, broad. And, and we were just more experienced, but um, didn't have experience in, in leading groups, but we, we were working together. 
and then and then kind of separating still, you know, each other. So the, I was responsible for certain things, another person was responsible for something else, skill oriented, or you know, in that sense. And that really that really gave me the idea that you don't need to have such hierarchy, right, in the system. Um, and we do that now, for example, as well. So we a couple of years ago we trying to organize the lab more in kind of an agile management style, where I have uh, right now four um, team leads. You know, they're, they're not having their own group. It's a team of people um, that they supervise. And we work together, the five people, kind of in a more like an executive committee in the lab. You know, let's say we've got 25 people right now. And it's very important that they have now independence to some extent, right? I mean, they, they have some money, but not all is their money. Um, and they get some of, of the money that I have available and, and they work with their teams uh, towards common goals and collaborate with each other and you know, establish rules in the lab and all kinds of things. I think that that's, was very important for me that at the time, because we didn't have you know, a leader around, a natural leader or official leader, uh, we self-organized and, and it was good for me. But I can imagine that this is not good for everybody. Some people need more mentoring to get their strength up and, you know, so that they can uh, um, start actually leading. But uh, I have to say in our university, at least, um, if you think about it, that you may be, you know, uh, well, I know you're 30 at the time. And I was 30, I think, when I, when I left uh, for the U.S., uh, 31. And, uh, and, and I think the, um, the thing is you don't have so much time actually to get these positions where, for example, assistant professor position or something like that. And our university at ETH, they don't stop that, for example, when the, at the age of 35. And uh, they don't want, they want young people that already are able to lead and take responsibility for the lab to plan a program. And so this is really helpful. So that is something that I think if you're looking for a postdoc position, you should look at the structure that, you know, how are the people organized and is it very hierarchical or is it something that you have independence if you also then get the trust that you can do the things, right? So that's important. This experience that you had in the U.S., it sounds like it's really shaped the way you are leading your own group now, because very often in, in a lot of research group, when, you know, PIs, principal investigators are establishing their, their first research group with their first independent funding and are starting to recruit, they, they don't necessarily want to give the lead to others. And, and there is still, because they, a lot is at stake when you're setting your, your own group, you know, you have a probation mechanism where you are going to be judged yourself. Mm. So a lot of pressure is put by new PIs in the way they are leading their research team and don't necessarily want to let go a, a lot of the control, which you, you understand because it's their own career that is at stake. And, and learning to let go is difficult. When you went back to Switzerland after the period in the US and you were establishing yourself, how did you learn to create a research culture that was really empowering for others? So that's, that's um, also an interesting question that you would need to reflect. You know, a lot of it is not, at that time, not so much by design. So that's the first important thing, right? So you'll find that probably many people they just act the way they feel they do it right now. They influenced by things that happened before, like you said, 
and they bring a culture with them or multiple cultures with them on how to do that, but they do not yet say, how do I want to be? So your first PhD student that you hire is extremely important. And I see, because that person is, is really somebody that eventually will probably grow very closely. Right? Because you go through the same experience. It's just a few years apart, actually, in that sense. And you're helping, you know, if it's successful, then, right? which many times it is, of course, then this person is very important. And I took a little bit of time, actually, to find that person. But that was the, maybe the only thing. So for me, it was I needed certain skills that I didn't have because I could still work in the lab, of course, at the time. And so that was one thing, skills, but also personality was extremely important. And uh, I think that many people make that mistake when they when they hire, and especially also uh, uh, in a, in a program like Fidelio, you have to hire within three months, right? It's a big problem, you know, because you might not have met the person that would actually be the perfect match. Uh, if you waited the two more months, you would find that person. And I think this is if you have a chance, you know, then that's a very important part that you that you wait. And it's on both sides, you know, it's not, it's not just the supervisors picking, you know, the, the best people. It's actually the best people picking their supervisors, right? So it's flattering if you get offers, uh, but the people that get offers get more offers. It's, it's typical, right? The people we want, they also are wanted by others. And, and I think that's something that one really should think about all of these kinds of things. And then this, I think you have a very quick, Personality is, is something that you very quick at, at seeing like a connection in that sense. I mean, a certain connection, professional, right? In that sense, that you feel like that person, it's a couple of things he or she said. And yeah, that's kind of resonating with me, right? Whereas um, skills are more difficult sometimes, right? Because you're hiring somebody that doesn't have the same skills than you because you want to have a formal skills. You might only find out later, actually, whether they actually really have the skills or not, right? But personality, a fit in the team. And I always hire it this way. I say, like, oh, now we have started to go a little bit in that direction. I need people that uh, support that spirit that uh, we have around it. But I must say that this becomes more difficult as you really grow to a large size. I think that's where it becomes much more Difficult. There are a couple of things that you said that I think are really important. This also the idea of you know, in 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 thinking about you know diversity of teams and you know working with people because the way we connect with others, we we in a way often we like people who are a little bit like us, and in a way it creates a, it create biases whether we want it or not in the people that we are recruiting then it has an impact in terms of you know who belongs to to research in some ways so how how do you think that you've tried to tackle this 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 challenge of you know recruiting within the context of trying to diversify who enters the research profession and also how do you then create a dynamic within your team with all these people who have different aspirations different motivation and when your 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 research group is 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 kind of building and you have all these you know different dynamics to to manage and 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 lead in a way towards actually achieving a common purpose it gets very messy at some point yes i think it does and uh it's very different at early age in that sense and you know when and you when you're progressing when you've done it maybe a, a multiple times and i think the the 
easiest things that I all I have always tried to do that is you have to somehow reinvent yourself in terms of how you do that every you know so so many years. So I've been at ETH a professor 20, 21 years now, right? So and I had maybe four different management styles, let's put it this way in that time. You know, maybe the longest period I would do seven, eight years or something like that, of a similar type of approach that I thought that peaked and and I need to change something. And the good thing about, um, you know, our environment is, of course, you don't have put the people need to change, right? You you cannot, you will usually not leave. <laughs> so you, have, you stay, but the people will leave, you know, around you. So this is, you know, always a, a problem. You're losing a lot of know-how, right? Uh, when people are leaving, uh, both on the PhD level or postdocs or, you know, group leaders or something like that, but they go to a better place. And then it's actually easy to then say, well, you know what? I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm not going to find a replacement for the person. I'll, I'll, I'll start something new. And, um, and I think this has really helped, you know, so that I can be, you know, have these dynamics of building something. So sometimes it can be challenging for people that are still around. If you say, now we're changing the system. They like to have this kind of structure that tells them it's always the same. Get my good coffee in the morning, right? And I need to thrive on that. I want to have stability. On the other side, if you're building something, at some point, you usually get some dynamic. And it's a lot simpler to lead because people are just in that stream. They cannot avoid. They cannot swim against it for a long time. And, and I think that's always tried to, to do, get some of these dynamics. It can be hard, can be challenging, and, and needs good skills. And I've always done my best, I guess. But for me, it was also more interesting, and that's very important. If it's more interesting for me, I'm also a better mentor. I'm, you know, a better listener. I'm, a, you know, I just have a better time. And then I think that is actually something that you pass on to the people that you work with, right? In that sense, and all because you're getting, of course, as the older you get in the system, you're getting more detached. I mean, for the from, you know. I mean, I, I, I know that maybe some of the, my colleagues have the ability to still be in the lab, let's say, right? And, you know, want to do something themselves. But typically, it's more difficult, actually, as a, as a professor, certainly, right? Because you're not just a researcher, you're also an educator, you, you're an administrator, you all kinds of jobs that you have. And that, that t- brings you a little bit away from the people. And how to manage to be close I'm still sometimes uh, struggling or like trying new ways of uh, how to interact, right? So this is something that is important. But in general, though, it's I think the only way you can survive in that is if you give the people that freedom that they can, you know, operate independently eventually and uh, work on establishing trust that, you know, you really don't have to check. Right. We had a lot of discussion about that. There's, uh, certainly in the time of uh, Corona. Now, this uh, is special, right? Because you see the people a lot less. So, and to have, you know, do they have trust that they're doing well? That's something that is sometimes confused that you don't trust them doing anything. And I think this is something that's very difficult, right? To, to that. So, so you have to build that trusted relationship that you know they actually doing well and then the people know i don't need 
him. I can really do it independently. And that takes a little bit of time. So then there's the other philosophy that people would say, you have to trust the people, whatever. Not necessarily of that category. I'm not, I think that can work, but I am, I think that not necessarily have to earn trust. I don't think so. It's not something you earn, but you have to work on this trust relationship on both sides because the people have to also trust me that if I maybe make a recommendation, they should really pick it up rather than to say, no, I need to listen to myself. You know, trust me, I can do that. And they're like, well, why don't you trust me as well, right? I recommend you doing something differently because I have experience. And, and that's a very important. As soon as this trust is established, then the people can work extremely independently. And it doesn't matter so much, you know, how much supervision you actually have, you know. It's uh, just knowing that if there's a problem, you go talk to the person. But if not, you move on and you work with your other team members, you interact with them, and they don't have to worry so much about, you know, like what, what would my supervisor think about that, for example, right? Is that the right decision? Can I ask you, what do you think is really essential, you know, as a research group leader in terms of building trust and having the conversation that are necessary? Because there are lots of reports about challenges in the research culture and the tension between PIs, students and, and postdocs and so on. But you know, kind of reflecting on the ways you've tried and the way your research leadership has evolved over the years. Yeah. What do you think is really the essence of establishing good relationship between research leader and postdocs or PhD students? What's really the secret element or the magical element that really make powerful interaction, good collaboration, and so on? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. And that really needs a lot of self-reflection, right? So what went well and what maybe didn't went so well? Obviously, overall, you know, it's a... So let's say when you're young and you have a lot of enthusiasm for things and you can actually infect people for that, right? I think that that is oftentimes a hallmark of, of young successful investigators. You know, they have enthusiasm and they can infuse others with that. Of course, this goes away with time, but the advantage that you have with time is that you have a lot of role models for them. You can say, look, that's a person kind of similar to you, and look what, how successful they were. They were able to do it, right? And I think this, this is some, whatever the success actually means. I mean, that's, that's, you know, I think working on success stories together really is, if, and then if you are successful in that, then, then you will build trust, right? Because you say, this will be successful, trust me. And it happens, then of course you have that trust. So because the people do not necessarily have to trust you on that. And so, but expectation management, what success means is also very important, right? And again, for me, you know, to be honest with you, most important thing at that point in my career, certainly now, is that the people can enjoy themselves doing what they do, you know, really performing at the highest level and enjoying it, right? Not for me, not that I get more papers and more citations or more money uh, is really not important anymore because, you know, that's, that's something that will stop at some point. But to see that joy that if somebody now found a way and is successful in, in meeting their aspiration, which something that I discuss with them is also matching my aspiration for them, this is, this is one of the best things you get, you know. 
this is uh, this is something extremely enjoyable if, if that comes together. And typically, you know, it, it will uh, with PhD students because you spend so much time with them. And uh, they, I mean, in our system, we do not have um, so much uh, time set. You know, it's not like, okay, PhD is three years and that's it. It's like a PhD is done when, when it's done. So when you have achieved, you know, what it takes to have a unique uh, contribution. And, and I think most of the time what I see is people are done when they have, when they, when they're comfortable with what they do and enjoy it. And they actually now have a problem and say like, oh, now it's so enjoyable. I know all my things. I could go on forever. And then you say like, well, now maybe you should do a PhD first, right? And finish and, you know, get out again and do something else after that. So this is something, again, it was always a driver for me. Uh, many of my decisions had to do with being able to, to enjoy. That doesn't mean that all the things that I've done or people have to do are enjoyable all the time, of course, right? It, but it should be a general thing that you... You know, not always feel like, okay, can I, can I, um, can I do that? Can I fail? Um, and, and you see that a lot, right? I mean, there's a, a lot of people trust, don't trust themselves. It's not so much even the trust to another person. It's actually, they don't have confidence in their ability. And that's something that maybe at ETH sometimes I think helps me because you said, you know, it's, it's a, it's a well-known prestigious university. And I sometimes can tell them, you know, why do you think we hired you, right? I saw something. I mean, I had 100 people applying for the job. You got that job. You know, look for that quality that's why you were hired and actually work really on that because you're going to make it, you know, right? You, you can do it. But that's really something that I not that takes sometimes a long time until the people realize that they have it in them. They always look somewhere else. They compare themselves to others. Oh, this person already has a paper. You know, I'm not yet there. It's very individual. And, and it's something that I would love to have them, you know, in, enjoy their work, you know, that they really know I can do it. I can, I can produce something that will be successful. And again, whatever that means, right? That's an important element because people start PhDs for all sorts of reasons. And in a way, the motivation that, uh, you know, a PhD student has about, you know, why they're doing this may be very, very different than maybe what the supervisor think, what the motivation of the student is. When you're applying for a PhD program, you know, the story that you tell the person recruiting you may be actually quite different from the, the real story of why you want to do this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's the same for, for, you know, post, for postdocs. The reason they're starting a postdoc, you know, the, the narrative created to be recruited and the reality can be different. As a supervisor, how do you build an atmosphere where there is, you know, true honesty and openness yeah. about sharing, you know, what the motivation of everyone is? Because it's about getting people to move on in their career and and for for some phd student and postdoc you know a career they, they don't necessarily want to have an academic career or maybe they want to you know to move to industry or to move in you know work in the public sector and it's something that i've seen often in some of the challenges where the supervisor may not really be interested in what the students wants to do afterwards they just want the, the research to be done. So again, you know, my basic background is in engineering, right? And so teams are extremely important. 
And I think if you, and but over the years, so in the beginning, we were developing a lot of technology, for example, right, and applied it then to biological medical questions. So now with time, I have done a lot more science in that sense, right? That is, let's say, be hypothesis-driven as you name it. And there you have a tendency that the individual is uh, elevated, right? You know, the person that asked the right question would actually get the price, you know, whatever. Not so much the team, but I still work very much on the team level. So I, I need to tell people that they have to form teams because they have not the skills to do the projects themselves, even if it's a scientific project. They need the other type of skill. And uh, not so they will be very rarely uh, having, let me say, two biologists working together. It can be, right? But it will be a physicist and a biologist, a chemist and, and a mechanical engineer. And, you know, I, I try to make these teams. And, and that's where you have not so much pressure anymore, you know, actually to follow your own ideas. You know, you, you, you have, you, you're forced to some extent to agree on a common uh, way forward. And it, it doesn't have to be me that tells you that. It's just naturally uh, bounding, actually. This team uh, gives you purpose and actually gives you uh, a, a way forward, right? So I think this is really, really important that you can do that. Um, to work on team. I, I know, you know, like I said, the alternative program that I've experienced myself also in the Boston area is that, for example, for postdocs, you hire two postdocs, you put them on the same project, the person that um, actually delivers more results in four months will continue with the project, the other person goes back to square root one and actually, you know, starts again, right? And I think that's so super. Put them together and work together, right? And have success for both of them. I I know that sometimes people say, but I need to have something that identifies me and that I'm like unique out there, so I can be hireable. And so that's why I need to, you know, need, need to be elevated. And so I need to, you know. But I I have not done that. I haven't given in to that thought. I see that my people that want to do academic careers, which by the way are less and less is they all they all got positions so you know in the past you know i think i have one case where you know a person did go to industry but actually wanted to do an academic career and then never found a way back actually into that and and there was many reasons but all the other ones have finally eventually found actually a, an academic home so even though they were not so easy to identify they were part of that team that did some good things and the universities wanted to have an exponent of that team and have actually somebody building a similar system at their university, right? So that's something I've tried to convey to them that, you know, you, in a way, if you are working with, you know, experienced uh, researchers that have had some success in some sort, you know, whatever that means, right? Then there is typically, you know, um, let's put it this way, oftentimes other universities would like to have such activities as well, right? They would maybe like to hire that person that leads that, but they can't, right? They're like too old already, they don't movable anymore, you know? So, but then the, the, the next thing they, is like, oh, maybe I could get a, a young talent, right? From that group uh, that could help us actually to build a similar type of approach for our university because uh, we believe in this uh, approach. And I think this happens really a lot. So this is this is not you know when you see like um, famous people that they have 
lots of disciples, let's say, you know, and going to other academic position uh, somewhere else. It's not because they influence the process and call and you have to hire my person and something like that. It's because the, the universities want that kind of philosophy. They like it. They say that this way, I think you can be successful. They work in teams. So it doesn't matter so much the individual, as long as the spirit is correct, as long as you are able to put together the teams, then you will be successful again also in a new place, even if it's not, you know, the the the, the founder, let's say, of you know this kind of thing. I think this is a, a, a very important lesson. And I think many times I, I, I can achieve that uh, in, in the people. But I also have sometimes failed that the people are working, you know, failed in that sense, that they were not really integrated well with a project into the whole group but still were very successful in the end in doing their own work because they was just more, it was it didn't have the kind of opportunities. But in general, I see that with time, people start uh, working together, right? In that sense, in the team. And again, you know, bringing back to something that, for example, um, as an ITN, yeah, you have, of course, the team is huge and distributed over Europe. But if the person that works with me, I have one ESR with me, uh, would only collaborate with the bigger team in Profidelio, it would be very difficult. So this person is also integrated in activities locally. And it's my job then to make sure that they fit with, of course, what we want to achieve in a large project like Fidelio, right? So there's other people working on similar type of topics, but not hired by that, but they, they, there is interaction possible, right? And synergies. Uh, that uh, you do. So I think this is a very important part that these people are locally integrated uh, into these teams. Which advice do you give early career researchers in terms of working well with PhD supervisor or PIs mm. recruiting them? What, what do you want to see in them that makes it for you a really pleasurable experience of, say, this is just a fantastic interaction mm. working mm. with this postdoc? Gosh, that's that's a tough one, I think, because it, you know the, the thing is that I do not believe that you can treat all the people the same. So right, then you grow up as I, I was oldest brother of four brothers, right, and then my parents would always tell me, although fifteen years difference between me and the youngest, would always tell me we want to treat everybody the same, right? And I think you can't. You, you know, you, you have to look at the individual skills and, and, and make bring them out. And, and that's something, that's why I can't tell you, this is something that you have to do. Some person will have to do this, another person have to do I have to see it. How could I maybe help? I'm, I'm more experienced. I don't have to be kind of unilateral, just that's one way of doing it. And you need to come my way. I think that's very important. So I think this is the discussion. So when when to be successful, if you come from the PhD side, I think uh, you need to ask a lot of questions. So you you know that's that's what you have to do. Be curious. Ask a lot of questions to somebody who is experienced, and and then actually also listen to the answers. So I think this is really a very important part. I see a lot of people and on then asking a question if it's not you know, the answer is not exactly what they wanted, then they they should have tried to go. And it's, it's okay. They can be independent. But to have somebody that looks out for your best interest and tries to say, look, if you would do this, I can kind of guarantee that this will be successful. Then you have something to hold on to. And and then and then you build on that. Then you then you put 
you know, more on top of it. But why don't you start with this step first? Because then you know this works. And then the next one. So for me, it certainly works the best if people are listening to, you know, advice that I tell them how to structure their approach, right? Not, you know, how to do things. They need to find out themselves. But he said, when, what would be a certain achievement you should have now? It's really helpful, I think, if they can listen to that and try that and then come back to me and say, well, sorry, this didn't work. And I go like, oh, okay, well, then maybe let's think about something else. I can try to help you again. But, you know, uh, but rather than to say, nah, you know, I want to, I want to do it maybe, you know, something else. I want to directly go to that milestone because I lost already some time. I'm falling behind. I want to be faster. And uh, this is some, that's where I'm, I'm struggling, you know, sometimes a little bit. But I also, on my side, have to ask more questions. It's something that I would say as a supervisor, you need to do the same thing. So it's really for both sides, right? So I should ask more questions, not providing answers, you know, right? And then, you know, when they answer, I should listen to those and not necessarily take action, right? Just listen. And I think this is something where you can really build trust. If you if you feel like you can ask a question and it's not just a solution that comes at you, right? I mean, I think we as the PIs often have that tendency that you immediately try to solve problems. So it's about having an openness to be able to yeah. to have an, a, a proper exchange. That that will, that is something extremely important. That that is uh, that you have this openness, and that's where I personally do have to work on that, right? So, I mean, certainly a lot of success came by my some good ideas that I had, and I kind of forced it almost on people. You know, it can work, but it, I think it can be much better if you if you really like have the people find out themselves about that and how how to do that. I think that's where the supervisors often uh, struggle a little bit, right? They 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 go like, no, that we propose this, for example, in this grant, and we know need to do exactly that, right? And do that first, you know, and then there's no more time to do something else. And then I think this is an important thing then in the planning and and how you propose things. And at least it worked for me. Let's put it this way: in my career, is that anything I proposed. I had a feeling that it would take about half of the time for people that would get, you know, hired for the project. And then we can do more, right, on that in the rest of the time. I mean, related to that, not something else, do exactly that, but just put more on it, you know. So I'm a strong believer that is something that the, that the people, they should always under-promise, right, and then over-deliver. And you see so many times that, PI supervisors go the other way around. They like overpromise, you know, all the time. And they kind of stretch so thin, right? Because, you know, can't achieve it. It's, if you overpromise, then it's, of course, you, that's the word says it already. Of course, you don't think you overpromise. You think this is the right thing. But I think you, you really need to have a good uh, planning there. And then I think if you do that, this really enables also your PhD students or postdocs, right? You tell them, this is the minimal thing we need, but I don't think you need more than half of your time. Go out there and try something else and, you know, come back to me and tell me how this worked, right? But don't forget to do half at least, right? But that's a, that's a really critical element because it's about creating a space for people to develop their research independence and, and, and experiment, which in a way, I mean, having interviewed a lot of postdocs, 
people often feel that they don't have that space to develop their own thing yes. that will then be the elements. In the role that you now na- have, you know, as, as a very established academic, what do you think that you are doing to create a culture within your own department? What, what do you think is your role right now? And what are you trying to do? Well, this is, you know, again, it, each institution has their different approach, as you said. And our institution very strongly believes in individuals, you know, running their small little companies, right? So it's it's actually much more on the hiring process where we influence once they hear you know, young people that come in, for example, then we, we believe that we found people that will develop, you know, um, the right way. But um, it's, it's not correct, of course. It's not correct. Uh, and it, I don't have very good tools. I couldn't give you a, a perfect example on how we actually in, empower more uh, the people to do that. But one thing that works for us is that we have to give feedback as a whole faculty, right, to young assistant professors like every 18 months or something like that. So they have to present, they make their case, and then you have all the people that have already permanent positions, because it's the best, let's say, in rank higher, let's put it this way, they will actually give feedback to you. And they, you can see many of these things come up. You go like, there's many comments then sometimes, but, you know, are you... Are you giving actually, you know, I can see that your students never get awards. You get awards, but your student never gets awards. How can that be? And, you know, things like that. And they go like, well, yeah, yeah I need to get right. I need tenure. And they go like, no, of course, uh, you get tenure because your student gets award. Oh, that's how it is. Yeah, of course. Uh, let's measure that. And then, you know, so much information. So I think this is something that you need to do. And you actually have to do it with everybody. It's not just one mentor, it's not the department head or whoever is responsible. It has to be everybody in there, right? You, so all of these people have a mentor that is not any kind of their boss, so they're very independent, but they will get a mentor that helps them go through the process, but then they have actually mentoring from the whole department. We really know what they do, how they present themselves, and I think it's really helpful I mean, uh, to happen. When I was a uh, and this professor, it was nothing like that. It's just that independently, in the end, there was a decision, right? You had no clue how they came up with that decision. Typically, it would also be positive, hopefully, you know, but nevertheless, it's much nicer to be a part of a, a process. So I think that's where the universities have to change. And I know this is pretty unique about uh, ETH, and it was only, you know, started a few years ago, right, that you have such, you know, we started with a committee, you know, that would be kind of tenure promotion committee, quite large. But then the president of ATH actually said, no, no, you have everybody needs to be there because we don't want to actually appoint people in the end or promote people that not all the faculty know. Right. And uh, don't give us any feedback that would say, you know, if you would have no negative points about the person in your evaluation, you have to write down everything, then we don't believe you. Right. So you have to be really critical, right, in a good way, you know, in an encouraging way. And I think that really helped now these younger people to understand what maybe are the important and learn from the more experienced people why they were successful. You know, they do not have to follow that, but they know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, it's a, it's a form of 360 feedback mm-hmm. in, in some ways. And do you include the PhD student in the postdoc in the feedback as well? Um, 
no. I mean, their group, you mean, when they, when they yeah, come, yeah. no, they are not present in that sense, right? So we're not, we, we don't look at that, that, that will be probably too much, right? So, I mean, it's, it's just, <laughs> maybe that's the challenge. <laughs> at least what we do now is like uh, getting some peer pressure in that sense as well, is that you have to, um, as a you know, professor at ETH, you have to have a formal annual progress support meeting with all your PhD students, right? Uh, don't have any postdocs, but just the PhDs. Of course, you uh, can do that, but it's, you know, before, you now this is an, a required thing. You have to write a document, you have to sign it, and you have to put it such that it's accessible for the department if there was anything, right? So to, in that document, it's not confidential. It's not sent anywhere. Nobody checks, but it, you, it needs, it's an official document. And I think this really helped, you know, to formalize some of the things, some of the discussions as well, right? That you that you uh, address, right? Uh, problems, uh, see them coming early. This is, is really helpful. That I would certainly recommend that this is happening. I think there are some universities are, are further ahead, you know, where they have regular in committee meetings, of course, right? And they give not just their their privileged uh, information with the supervisor. They, they take away a little bit the importance of the supervisor, right? Supervisor might be just the person that uh, hires, right, a PhD student, but maybe not the most influential person to bring them uh, further. And, and I implement that, again, as I mentioned before, a little bit in my uh, my team. So I, I see myself as supervisor. I don't lead any of the teams in my group, so I'm not like, you know, it would be kind of strange, I think. So I have four teams and they have team leaders. And the PhD students are all associated with these teams. And so their first supervisor is the team lead somehow, right? Is the person they they need to attack. And I have independent meetings with the PhD students because they have a special part. And I will have independent meetings with the postdocs because, again, about mentoring. But I can focus on these kind of elements then. I, I do not have to, I mean, every now and then I can give advice on how to solve the problem. But... Most times it's about these kinds of things, how to get traction, are you happy with how you perform? And that's where my role is. And, and, and so I think this is, has really helped me to give, of course I lose influence and I every now and then see myself that, oh gosh, I, I would like to have influence. I have a great idea. Can somebody do that for me? But you have to learn how to stand back a little bit and give these younger people then the ability to develop uh, something. So I, I like to, to finish just with a, a couple of questions and five key, key things that you would want people to know in terms of, you know, having really effective relationships between principal investigator, dash supervisor and the researchers they're working with. Uh, well, what would be your, your five top tips? Yeah, this is a very uh, tough one of course but it's great if you have many of those then you certainly find you know something i think that's very important right you because you're having many such interviews i can see you get a nice list together so i think the first tip i give is really like that you choose your workplace wisely you know and then also as a supervisor choose the person you want to work with wisely right and and i mentioned that before i think the people that we want right to work with us are people that many people want. You know, that's a little bit unfortunate to some extent as well, of course. It's not necessarily the case that everybody has the same chance, right? There is, you know, and that they find still, you know, another type of career, but the people that are, they are early on, you can recognize sometimes 
you know, and many people recognize that and they want to work with them. So if you feel not so comfortable with one place, wait. Or if you're not feeling so comfortable with one person applying or with a group of people, wait. Uh, and, uh, you know, go with that feeling, that instinct that you have and, and wait for the uh, good opportunity. I think the, the next one is, again, you know, something that once you have been identified as, as being this member, you need to believe in your skills that you were hired for. Somebody hired you for something that they thought you can really do well. And I think you need to do that and, you know, not really compare so much to others. So don't compare. Um, and it's not an achievement by itself. It's a skill they have and believing in. And, and I mentioned before, uh, a very important thing is for both sides is this about the, the asking the questions frequently, asking, be in contact, ask questions. And, and do not necessarily explain what you do, but ask questions. You know, it's much more powerful to ask questions. And then again, one needs to build a culture where people listen. Uh, to the answers and and then decide what you want to do with it later, right? Don't have to respond right now. Uh, and, and when you have all of that, I think that's where you can start working on a really um, trusted relationship. I mean, if that is coming about, that you have developed that trust for each other, um, that that is the best way to work, right? Because, you know, hopefully it's full trust. I mean, that's something. And, and I think this this is something that you really have to work on. I think it's very, very difficult um, if supervisors, for example, say, I, I just, in principle, trust all my my staff. You know, I know they are good and and I just trust them. And I think sometimes they feel lost. You know, they, they it's not necessarily the, the best thing just to unconditionally trust them. They have a problem and they say, I trust you can solve it yourself. It may be not good. So trust is needs to be mutual on both sides. It has has to be, you know, developed, I think, in that sense all the time and as quickly as possible. And then the last, and for me, still the most important is uh, try to have fun. I mean, try to have fun with the work, right? So I see so many people trying to have fun with other things. And and uh, you, I think you can have a lot of fun with the work. It's, it can be a passion. It can you can do a lot. It doesn't need to be your life, not at all. There should be other things you can have fun with. But why not? There are so many more questions. I wish I had the time to ask you, but I've already taken so much of your time. Yeah. It's been really a pleasure meeting you. Same here. Thank you so much. Thank you very very much for this for this discussion. I hope that the you know the the rest of the pandemic is good for you and your research team and that people are still able to you know to do some good work because obviously it's impacting uh, many researchers across the world it's a, it's a, it's a tough period for for early career researchers and hopefully we'll get out of it so I hope we have an opportunity to meet face to face at some point through the DITN network and thank you thank you Sandrine I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees.
of this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.